Welcome to the sixth podcast in our Advent Sermon Series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Seeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley will be continuing our series with a sermon called Shameless Hope. All right, quick informal survey. Who had, who had cookies this past week? Raise your hand. All right, put it down. Who had too many cookies this past week? Raise your hand. All right, put it down. What were you thinking? <laughs> I know I had way too many cookies. And this morning, I felt kind of sick. Who felt sick this morning? Raise your hand. All right. <laughs> you know... There is a limit to what we should eat, right? And I found that limit this past week. That's enough information on that. So let's move on. Uh, this past Advent series, uh, we, we took a break from how we normally course our way through a book of the Bible. We considered different themes that were presented in that book, Come Let Us Adore Him, that devotional book, which, by the way, there's two copies left. And it runs through the end of December. If you didn't grab a copy or if you'd like to give one to a friend, if you've enjoyed it and you'd like to gift it to somebody else, there are two copies left. When they're gone, they're gone, and I want them to be gone, okay? This isn't like at home or at your grandparents where you're at dinner and no one takes the last whatever on the table, okay? We want everything to go. So if you didn't get a copy, you'd like to have one, or if you think somebody else would enjoy it, please grab one. So we've We've looked at promises, we've looked at brokenness, uh, we looked at peace, and uh, uh, last week we looked at joy, and of course Christmas Eve, we thought solely and completely focusing in on Jesus and who he is and how he came to heal, to, to bind us up, to heal the brokenhearted, and now this morning our last look at one of those themes, so we uh, end this series considering hope. Uh, and hope, especially this past year, has been elusive uh, for so many people, for not just Americans, for so many people in our world today. Uh, I don't know if you get a lot of um, end-of-the-year stuff in your email inbox. I know I do. And a, lot, a lot of it's you know, marketing garbage. Uh, but there's some other things that I kind of look forward to. So uh, one of those is, comes from an organization called the Pew Research Center, they do all sorts of studies and, and, and research throughout the year, and they always come up with like their top 10 or 20, whatever, very interesting things that they discovered, so they kind of key in on at the end of the year. So uh, this is one that I saw that I thought was just very interesting. You see it right there on the screen. Do you think there is a lesson? This is the question that they surveyed Americans with. Do you think there is a lesson for humankind to learn from the coronavirus outbreak, and you see at least some of the results there that I highlighted for you. 86% of the respondents said, yes, there is some kind of lesson or set of lessons to learn. And of that 86%, 35%, over a third, uh, just a little bit over a third, said that that lesson was sent 
from God, and only 13, 13% believe there is not a lesson to be learned at all. So most of us believe, or at least we hope, that there is a meaning behind things that happen to us. Even the most tragic things, the things that we are, maybe especially those things that we know that we, they are beyond our control, like a, well, like a pandemic, we want to think, we want to hope that there's a reason that, this, that these things happen. And in fact, now regardless of your religious background, or even if you have a religious background, most, at least most Americans, have a hard time accepting that things just happen for no reason. You know, that, and maybe part of that is our Western upbringing and our rationalistic thinking. Maybe if we're Eastern thinkers, we wouldn't really go down the same path. I don't know. But at least for Americans, we, maybe it's our upbringing or our education, but maybe it's more than that. Maybe there's something inside us uh, that kind of lends itself towards hope because we hope that there is something to this. And we kind of naturally reject this random idea, well, it just doesn't matter, or just things happen, and, and we're completely out of control, and uh, it's, you know, it's all who knows, right? We reject that. We want to inwardly, I think, we're, we're tuned to believe and to hope that there is a reason for why things happen the way that they do. I think it's ingrained in us, that there is a lesson to learn. Now, a, a number of people, a third, at least in this survey, think that God's behind it, that God has a lesson for us to learn, that there's a point to this. We don't just blindly move on uh, in a, some kind of uh, hand, God hands-off kind of way until we're dead and gone, that we want to believe, we hope that there's something else going on. So this morning, we're going to start with that idea that most of us hope that there's something going on that most of us hope that there is a reason, and we're going to look at hope from the Bible's perspective. And there are two main passages, one we heard read already this morning, and there's another passage in the original Testament or the Old Testament that we're going to start with that helps us move, really, it gives us a quick snapshot this morning, but a snapshot shot of what Scripture does with hope. Because hope is another mega theme in the Bible. Uh, so many, hundreds of times the word hope is used. You get out your concordance, you look it up, you do your word search thing, hundreds of times. Now some of those times are, I hope we get together soon. Okay, so that's not really what we're talking about. Most of the times that we see hope, it is heavy. It is uh, an idea that is developed in this mega theme that draws us in and clues us in to something else that there is a bigger reality, that God is behind what's going on. So anyway, if you look up hope, and especially in the original Testament, which is most of our Bible, some people are out there saying that the original Testament or the Old Testament really doesn't mean anything today. That's garbage. Don't believe anybody who says that, okay? Uh, Two-thirds, at least, of our Bible is the Old Testament or the original Testament. And in within the idea of this mega theme of hope, there is deep stuff that we can mine. We don't have time for all that this morning, but go back and look at it. You will find huge things that you can learn from and dwell on. 
for example, I'll throw out some, some names. Maybe you don't know all of them, and that's fine, but there are major characters, major people in the original Testament that God uses to teach us about hope. Ruth, Esther, two major names in the original Testament. Uh, if you know about them, you know some of the trials and the struggles that they went through uh, and how God used hope to change them and the people around them. Job, the great sufferer Job, right? This lengthy uh, original Testament book. Many times, many times, the word hope comes up with Job talking with his friends, trying to understand God and the meaning of evil and suffering and where is God in this? That's what they, 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 they keep talking back and forth. Hope comes up over and over again in that book. The, the book of Psalms. How many of these songs, there's 150 of them, many times throughout the book of Psalms, hope is a theme that presents itself in how the writer sings back to God. And it's not always happy. Many Psalms are, just spring out of hopelessness. Like, where are you, God, right now? And who do I trust? And what is going on? Uh, you'll find real stuff as the psalmist struggles with, uh, with hope and not finding or not having it. Uh, the major prophets like Isaiah, uh, we'll look in a passage Ezekiel in just a moment. They also struggle with hope because of where they're at in their life, what God has called them to do. Minor prophets, they're just minor because they're short. Like Hosea, we preached through and, and, and went through Hosea uh, through uh, like three years ago now, two years ago. Uh, fascinating stuff. Jonah, the guy got swallowed by a whale, right? Uh, if there's ever been a hopeless situation, that's one of them, you know? Uh, it, it, the way he struggled with hope and trying to find hope in God. So anyway, it is a huge theme for us this morning. We just get a snapshot of it, but it has a lot for us this morning. So just to kind of wrap this as major theme for the rest of the message, there's three parts to this mega theme that I see developed in Scripture. Number one, hope is finding home. Okay, let that start sinking in here. Hope is finding home. Now, where is home? Where is your home? Well, you think of you. You may think Im immediately of your street address or the community or the or the neighborhood you're in. That's that's home. The geographic uh, area. Maybe you think of something other than that, or maybe something in addition to that. Because many of us, the more we think about it, home is a place where you feel relaxed. is a place where you put the pajamas on, right? Because most of us still can't wear pajamas in public, although that does happen, but I don't think most of us do that. Or a uh, home for you is a place of security, of comfort, of, of belonging, of family and friendships. It's unlike any other place because of those emotional attachments that you have to people and even to places, okay? Well, I've got a proposition for you to consider. You see it on the screen right now, okay? No matter, it's, it's simply this. No matter where you are right now, uh, physically or even beyond that, no matter where you're, you're at right now, without Christ, where you're at isn't home, okay? Okay? I'm just going to throw that out there for you to start thinking about and start considering this morning. Now, why do I say this? So that's where we're going to get into this book called Ezekiel. Uh, it's in the original Testament. 
Uh, we're going to look at briefly chapter 37. If you open your Bible, it's almost dead center. You know, Isaiah or Jeremiah maybe is, is uh, center, I don't know. But Ezekiel is the, is the chapter 37 is a passage we're going to look at. Now, why do I say that? It's speaking of being home, okay? The Jews, uh, the, the nation, the people of Israel at the time where Ezekiel writes, where God tells him to be a prophet and step up and speak for him, for God, uh, the, the quick context is this. The people of Israel, they had a home, a physical, geographical home. They have a home that God has given to them that is Palestine or the land of Israel. It is part of the covenant. It is part of the promise that God made with them that I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to place you in a land. And in fact, the covenant promises you'll be there for generations. You'll be there forever. So they always believed that this place, these cities that we lived in, even in Jerusalem where the temple is, will always be their physical home because the covenant and God would never change that. God would never pull them out of that. Well, by the time Ezekiel writes, God pulled them out of that. And he has sent Israel into exile. Home is no longer home. For generations, even, even for centuries, they thought that could never change. That would never go away. We'll always have our home here because God promised. And it's gone. And the nation has crumbled. And uh, the, they've been defeated. And everybody who is anybody within the kingdom has been hauled off uh, to Babylon. And then Ezekiel steps in. And for all of this book, God tells Ezekiel these crazy things, these outrageous things, in order to make a point to the people. And the point, as you read through the book, if you read through the book, you begin to see that even though they were physically at home in the land, they were always away, from, or from Ezekiel's perspective, they were always away from their home spiritually. Okay? And it took drastic measures for God to get them to wake up, even dragging them off into exile to wake them up to that reality. That yeah, you're home physically, but you're not home with me, God is saying through Ezekiel. They'd forgotten, they'd ignored, they had neglected their true home, their, to, their true place with God the Father. They took it for granted. They reduced their relationship with God uh, to ritual, with the temple. They thought they were doing enough by following the rules and the standards, the moral obligations of the covenant. But God said, all of that's garbage because I don't have you. And you're not at home with me. So he does. It's tough love. He sends them off into exile. And that brings us to chapter 37. Now, uh, God many times in the original Testament, well, even some in the New Testament, uses visions to communicate ideas and to get people's attention. Now, today, when you hear somebody say, you know, I have a vision, or I had a vision, now, a lot of you think, and a lot of us, honestly, you know, get a little, uh, uh, okay, you know, maybe we don't trust that so much, and maybe for good reason, we don't trust every time somebody says they had a vision, if you've ever heard people say that. But I'm here to tell you that in the original Testament, it happened a lot. And God spoke, and even today it happens sometimes, so uh, we need to be uh, aware of that. God would give visions 
to people, and especially to prophets, to get a spiritual message across to a wider audience. And God uses that, uh, that mode, that way to communicate through the prophet Ezekiel. So in the beginning of chapter 7, it says, The hand of the Lord is upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. Now maybe you're familiar with this story. A lot of people know this story, uh, whether they've been in, in church or not, or even read the book of Ezekiel. It's a very familiar passage, the valley of dry bones, people talk about it. So God gives Ezekiel this vision of a valley filled with bones. They're dried up, so they've been there a long time. Now, to a Jew, I mean, not only is this kind of a gross cemetery, uh, awful, uh, even, you know, nasty kind of picture, it's also an unclean thing. Because to a Jew, being around a dead body is unclean. You are not to do that. That would make you unclean. So he plops Ezekiel in the middle of uncleanness, okay? It's like the worst horror story possible for Ezekiel. Look around you, okay? You're in the middle of these dry bones, and then God says to him, son of man, which he calls Ezekiel a lot, son of man, can these bones live? So <laughs> Ezekiel is, is, you know, wising up to God's rather unorthodox ways of communicating. And Ezekiel's answer is, oh, Lord God, you know. <laughs> it's perfect, right? He's not going to go out on a limb <laughs> and say that he knows anything at this point because he knows by this point how God works. Only you know God. Now, most of us would say, if you see piles of bones everywhere, the rational response is, they're done. They're dead. Life does not come out of piles of bones. But God has a different message and a different point. He says to Ezekiel, prophesy that these bones that come to life, that sinews and, and muscles and flesh would come upon these bones and there's this rattling of the bones and the bones come together and there's, and there's people. And then God says to Ezekiel, prophesy uh, that the that the Spirit of God, that the wind would blow, and that they'd be filled with life. And it's very interesting because the same kind of language in Genesis when Adam was created. When God breathed the breath of life into Adam, same thing is happening here. So from, it says, from all the four corners, this wind blows, and all these bodies, not only do they have flesh on them, but they begin to breathe again. And all of a sudden, he's surrounded by a great army of people. Thousands of people would be the picture of, of what he sees here at this moment. And then we read, uh, we'll read the shorter port, uh, par portion of the passage here, starting at verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophecy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it declares 
the Lord. That is the point of this amazing vision, he says. The, all of your brothers and sisters, all of these people that are now in exile say they are completely cut off. They are dead and hope is gone. Try. We're, what we've got to do right now is try to put our feet in the sandals of the listeners. Have you ever been in a place where hope is gone? Like really gone? Where you've considered because of an action, because of something's happened to you, because a situation you're in, it's like somebody has reached into your chest and grabbed your heart and ripped it out. And you're numb and it's over, and you feel like hope, and you're overwhelmed with the thought, with the feeling, with the emotion, with the realization that hope is gone. Have you been there? Have you been at that point? Sometimes it's through the loss of other people, uh, the loss of things possibly, uh, the sudden changes that we have to go through. To be at a place of hopelessness can be devastating. That's where the people are at. They say we are indeed cut off. There is no longer any hope for us. We are in Babylon for crying out loud. The land, our livelihood, everything that we had. We had privilege. We had comfort. We had stuff. And all of that has been ripped away from us. We're done. We're goners. We're as good as a pile of dried bones. Have you been in that situation? If you have, you know you have some idea what it is to, to, to know the reality of what he's talking about. To be cut off from God is absolute, complete hopelessness. When they realize they have nothing, that's when God intercedes. Because it's not until the point when you realize all these things that you used to hope in, even the covenant for Israel, even what God had promised, when you, all these things that you've grasped onto are not enough, then God begins to speak. Only when you finally realize you're cut off from God are you ready for the new life that will bring you to home, to a place where you are at home with Jesus Christ. So there's more to the story of hope. Just wanting more of what you had is not enough. And it certainly doesn't mean that you're going to be home yet. So hope is also, number two, given by God. Hope is a gift from God. There is no real hope without the Holy Spirit, without the Spirit of God bringing you to life and hope in the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel. That's where hope truly begins. Let's focus in on that last verse we read, chapters 37, verse 14. Now think about what I just said. Hope given by God, through the Spirit of God. What does he say to the people of Israel? And I will put my Spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. They are in a place of complete, utter, cut-off hopelessness, 
And he says what? It's the Spirit of God that brings you to life. Now, stop right there. If the story ends there, if we go just from, uh, well, we had hope because we had stuff, and now we're in exile, we're in hopelessness, and now he says, I'm going to place you in your own land, so I'm going to go back to a place where I think hope is. All we've got is a Hallmark movie, okay? That's all we've got. Are you with me? (laughs) We don't need, (laughs) all right, now you're here. Okay, we don't need the Spirit of God if we've got a Hallmark movie. In fact, the two are opposed to each other. Yes, I said it, okay? All right, I'm done with picking on Hallmark. Even a really good novel, okay? Because we like stories like that where things are, are, are good, happy, and then you lose it all, but then it comes back, and now we're happy again. The end. But that's not the story of Scripture. That's not, it's just A-B-A. It doesn't go like that when it comes to how the Spirit of God works. Life and hope come together from the Spirit of God, where the Spirit of God in a person who was hopeless then turns hopelessness into hope because Jesus becomes Lord. So hope is not attached to the place that you were or even the place physically where you may be going. Israel, and what Ezekiel says, has got to know that. That's, if they miss that, they miss the heart of this message, of the whole vision in the first place. From going to death where there is no hope, to life, it's because of the Spirit. Then the Spirit's going to put you in the place not attached necessarily to the land. And some people get that goofed up, okay? So we're not going down that track right now. But it's not about the land anymore. Home and hope are because of the Spirit in you bringing you back to life so that you're always home with God no matter where the land is. Israel needed to know that. And you know what? We need to know that. No matter what we found hope in previous to God, it, it's going to go away. And everything else that we grab onto, it may feel good, it may look good, it may help us for a while, but then hopelessness comes back because that dies off or that goes away or we're disappointed or frustrated or life changes on us. We've got to find hope in what lives on and what even endures in us. He says in this passage that the Spirit of God is going to raise you from your graves. He's going to give you life. Now, the word regeneration doesn't happen in here, but that's a big word that theologians like to put, you know, push around on us okay, and help us understand what it means when the Spirit of God brings a dead person back to life. He regenerates us from a valley of dry bones to life. That's regeneration spiritually in us, when the Spirit grabs onto us, when we come to the point where we realize everything that we hoped in uh, has become hopeless and I need something that isn't attached to that stuff, that I need God, then you know what's happening? The Spirit is bringing you back to life. Because without the Spirit involved, we're a pile of dry bones. We're dead in our sins is what Scripture talks about. And, in fact... I'm going to flip over to that. If you have your Bible, you can look at uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 2. The same idea is picked up by the New Testament authors in what is already presented in the original Testament. So Ephesians 
chapter 2, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and in the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. In other words, trying to find hope in everything around you, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were actually doing all that stuff, okay? Before Jesus, among whom we all once lived. Don't pick on anybody. We, without Christ, we're all in the same boat, and it's going nowhere because we're dead. Dead people can't help themselves. They can't, right? It's over. I mean, that's something that really has to, before we ever grasp onto the hope we have as a believer in Christ, you've really got to get real with the fact that without Jesus, you're dead. You can't help yourself in any way possible. There is no hope. The Spirit speaks and hope begins. The work of regeneration. So anyway, among uh, whom all we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Life was going nowhere, and hopelessness reigned in all of our lives before we knew Jesus. So let me wrap this up here. One more uh, uh, idea about hope. Hope grows in you by faith. Okay, we began with hope is finding home. Hope is given by God uh, through the Spirit working in us, and hope grows in you by faith. Enduring hope. That's the word I'm going to kind of land on here in the rest of this passage in Romans chapter 5. Enduring hope is the product of a life growing by faith. So hope begins and then hope continues. Hope is a starting point in our beginning of our relationship with Jesus, and it can then grow in our lives as we continue to find life in Jesus. Hope becomes bigger and better and more wonderful as we live in Him and not going back to the other stuff that never brought hope in the first place. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's the third point. Hope grows in you by faith. Faith. It's an enduring product of a life that is growing. Okay? So look at the process. Again, Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Pause right there. That has been that. Those first two verses, that's been the message of this whole series. Mega themes that we've talked about, are many of those are presented just in these five verses. And when you come to Jesus, you begin to understand what hope is all about. So Paul begins with therefore. He's kind of giving us a, a synopsis, a summary of where he's been at in these previous chapters in the book of Romans. All the, many of these things we've already covered uh, but it all wraps up into this idea of enduring hope. So as a believer, Paul is saying, you've been made right with God. You've been justified by faith, and that brings about peace through your relationship, wholeness, completeness, shalom kind of peace in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus that you can stand in grace. Not on your own efforts or not on your own abilities. There's no applauding that you're a better Christian than me. It's all about grace. The grace of God 
that is demonstrated through the love of Jesus Christ on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. It's through Jesus that we can stand at all and have any hope. And that is accessed by belief in Jesus Christ. Access, all of this is accessed by faith. Because you stand in grace, you can then rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Pause right there. If you're at a place where this sounds, maybe this sounds good, and maybe this, you know, it's good religious stuff, but I still don't quite get it yet. If there's something in you that's tweaking, if there's something in you that says, I don't have that and I want that, listen to what God is speaking to you in your mind and your heart right now. Because I believe that this may be the moment that he's trying to get your attention to bring you back to life. That the bones rattling is not just a cute little kid story in the original testament. We've all got bones that are rattling around without Jesus. And he may be trying to draw you back to life. So if there's something tweaking in your mind and your heart, listen to him. Listen to what Paul says. I, I was reading Ephesians chapter 2. Um, I stopped at the end of verse 3, but he goes on to say this in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, which is the understatement of the universe, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, there's that idea again, dread, dead in our sins or trespasses, made us alive, alive, together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places of Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. You get a theme here? Grace, grace, grace. You can't measure it. It doesn't end. It just keeps pouring out because we're in desperate need of it, not just once, but our whole lives. You feeling that in your heart somewhere? Yeah, I know I am. The riches of his grace poured out to us lavishly through Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. We stand in and by grace. And even the response that we have by faith is, is by grace. Without the grace of God bringing us to life, we are hopeless. But because of the grace of God, we find a home in Jesus. So if you've come this morning, or if you're watching online, and you've always wondered about that, but there's something tweaking in there, you have hope today because of Jesus alive at work in you. That's the beginning of hope that we read about in Romans chapter 5. But then this rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, then that triggers this whole longer thought process that Paul has. So let's read again the last few verses. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We just looked at 1 Peter. Talked a lot about suffering and testing and trials. Who rejoices in suffering? We all did a whole lot of suffering, and I'm not belittling this past year, because there are a lot of people that suffered extremely this past year. This, he's not just saying that to sound religious, or to sound good, or to sound better. To actually rejoice in suffering is a work of the Spirit in you. There is no other way unless you're out of your mind. That's the only way we could possibly look at it. 
knowing that suffering produces endurance. What? We don't just drop off the face of the earth. We don't just drop and crawl into the corner and stay there. There is something at work that God does through suffering that builds endurance. Endurance changes us, and that produces character, godly character. We are then being changed by the work of God in us, and this character grows within us, and it produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Now, that's a, it's a weird Greek word there. Many, some of your translations may say, and hope does not disappoint. Okay, If you're reading that in NIV, I think. So put to shame, disappoint. Those two words don't really sound similar at all, do they? So what, here's what I think is going on. When we come to hope in Christ, we come home to be with Jesus. We've come to a place of being filled with hope. Then vertically, our relationship with God is set. We're good. And even Paul says, we are justified. So we are right with God. But also, our horizontal relationships begin to change because of this process he's describing. So this hope that we have in Jesus, it establishes us with God. No more worries, okay? There is nothing disappointing when God looks at you as a believer follower of Jesus. Uh, and and there, is no, there is nothing shameful anymore. Although sometimes we go back to that and we get caught up with the shame of the sins of the past or even of the present. But God doesn't look at us that way because Jesus' work on the cross is that perfect and complete. Because we stand in that. And we stand in what Jesus did. So there's nothing disappointing in our relationship with God and there's nothing shameful anymore. But it doesn't end there. Because the godly character that is happening and changing us, then our horizontal relationships also begin to change. And there's nothing disappointing there either in view of the fact that I've been changed by Jesus. I can't screw that up either. Now, yeah, there's faults, there's problems, there's complications. I'm still a messed up person. But God has not forgotten me. There is hope that what God has begun, he's going to finish it. So, yeah, there's problems, but he's going to finish something that is not disappointing with you and me either. Do you get that? That's what I think Paul is saying here. We have a shameless hope. We have this hope that will not disappoint in any way, whether it's vertical or horizontal. God is that good. There's nothing he's forgotten. There's nothing he's left out. There's, nothing, there's no reason we have to say, oh, but only if, right? Uh, and then it drags our hope away into something else. No, God has covered it all. There's no reason to worry about it. It is shameless. God is that good. And we are in need of that kind of God to have that kind of hope firmly established in Him and only what He can do. There is no disappointment. This hope grows. I just love how the verse 5 ends. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that's not just past tense. That's the way it translates in English. But He keeps pouring. It just keeps pouring. Pouring, the love of God. We're drenched in it. We're drowning in it. It is that complete and it just keeps coming. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And again, once again, it's not dependent on me or any way I could possibly screw it up. Jesus keeps pouring his love into my heart. That is hope. I need that hope today. Have you tasted of it? 
Are you beginning to experience what that hope is like in your life? Trusting in Christ and then finally knowing that you're coming home in Him. Now, I don't know the last time you toured a house or you, or not just toured a house is for sale, but the last time you bought a house and you walked into the door uh, and the apprehension of looking around in that place that you hope is going to be your new home, right? And it better be just right, you know? I remember when we moved here, we looked at like 80 houses. It was an awful market back in 2002, and I was getting discouraged. Like, what's going <laughs> to, where are you going to live, you know? Uh, the van ain't big enough. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen here. You keep looking at homes and then find the house we're in now. Uh, like the light, you know, the, the switch was flipped and the light came on. And <laughs> like, ah, this, this is home. This, this can work. But it's never perfect. You know, you, you hope every room is perfect, right? You know, you walk in, this better be just right. And this better be, you know. Uh, but there's always something. You know, you wish this wall wasn't here. Or you wish this bedroom was bigger or... Uh, you know what I mean? You, it's, you, you, you've got to tweak the, this and that. Coming home to Jesus is so unlike that because you walk in the door of new life in Christ. You begin to get an idea of the surroundings of the home that Jesus has made for you in Him. And then as you grow in Him, kind of like what Paul is talking about, uh, this, this enduring progression of growing in grace, each room you go into, it just gets better because you discover more of what hope is in Christ and how he keeps pouring into you. And you go in the next room and maybe a little apprehensive, what am I going to discover in this part of my relationship? And Jesus is there. And yeah, there are sufferings as you go through these different passageways, you go down the hallway, you look in his closet and oh yeah, but uh, as, as he reveals more, the grace is still there and the home just keeps getting better. So in that respect, it's like nothing any of us have ever, ever experienced because home with Jesus is just that good. Who or what do you look to for hope in this coming year? We've struggled a lot. We all have. Maybe some of us, you know, terribly. This is a very real question, right? What, what is it? I mean, I, there's memes, there's all sorts of stuff online. You're finding, you know, the apprehension that most people have right now about what in the world's going to happen in just a few days. What is 2021 going to bring? What, what are you hoping in? What do you hope will happen in the next year? Or what, what do you hope doesn't happen uh, in this coming year? And also, where is your home? As, as we consider all these things we could hope in, what is it that brings you back to true hope? Is it Jesus? And if it hasn't been yet, and if what you're hearing is, yeah, I want some of that, time to go home. Make it now. Come home to be with Christ right now. As I read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, I, I look for places you know, where, where the Gospel writer just gives us enough where you begin to see and understand. Uh, and I, I like to picture what was it like, you know, to be a, what would have been like to be a disciple, to be in the presence of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 29. 
uh, John is speaking. It's the only gospel that has it. The other gospel writers don't uh, cover this in the same way. John, uh, uh, it's during that time, John the Baptist is baptizing people. And uh, John chapter 1, verse 21 says, or verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. Uh, and there's other people listening, right? Watching, wondering what's going on. And John was a forerunner to Jesus. John sees Jesus coming. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What would it be like in that moment to lay your eyes on eternal hope? To see Jesus coming, that's him. That's what the universe has been waiting for. And he brings hope to me, to my heart. As we move on in worship this morning, consider putting yourself in those shoes that all of all these other things you've been tempted to find home in, put your eyes back solely on the home that you can have in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're starting another mini-series called Belong. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Crossroads, Ruth, FaithWorks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.